Well, good afternoon. You're going to be a tough audience. Have you, has it been so sunny that you're all going to sleep now? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just going to crack on then and you listen if you want. Okay. There's been a great many leaders in human history who, in a sense, have been great innovators um, in, in human thinking. Some have even started their own religions and, uh, and some have amassed great followings uh, across the world in history. Muhammad, the Buddha, Confucius, uh, men like Moses. When one writer says, when people think of religious founders, these are some of the names that might come to mind. Do you place Jesus into that category of religious inventors? Is that what Jesus was? The surprise that lies at the heart of the Gospel of Matthew is that while Jesus certainly said some new things, he most certainly did not invent a new religion. At the end of Matthew, you might recall the night before Jesus was died, uh, was, was crucified and died, when he was arrested, he said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. That's the portrait of Jesus that we get in the Gospel of Matthew. He wasn't an innovator. He was the answer. Matthew presents Jesus Christ to us as the promised solution to all the questions that we might have. Rather than starting something new that he dreamt up, Jesus is actually, according to Matthew, the fulfillment of centuries of God's promises. Jesus comes into the world both to, both to fulfill God's purposes and the deepest yearnings of our own human hearts. If you can think back this long, in the run-up to Christmas, we uh, did a little mini-series in Matthew, do you remember? Seems a long time ago, doesn't it? No. Um, we were looking at Matthew's chapter 1 and 2, and now that we've finished our studies in Judges, we thought we would come back to Matthew. And over the coming weeks, we're going to try and explore this gospel together. And so we're beginning today, obviously, in chapter 3, because that's where we left off when we uh, finished just before Christmas. Now, Matthew skips all of the early life of Jesus. He tells us about his birth. He tells us he went to Egypt. And then he tells us that he settled in Nazareth. But apart from that, we know very little of Jesus' early life. Matthew tells us that the action really starts with this man uh, called John the Baptist. All the early Christians actually believe that this is where the story starts. Later on, after the resurrection, the disciples have a vote. We had a vote this week, didn't we? Um, they had a vote to try and replace Judas, who had committed suicide. And Peter says in the book of Acts, we need to choose someone who's been with us the whole time. The whole time. Beginning from John's baptism, 
right up until the time when Jesus was taken up from us. From Peter's perspective, the whole story begins right here with John the Baptist. So when Matthew says, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert, this actually marks the beginning. This is the start, this is the starting line. If you've ever watched the Grand National and the, the little guy there who fires the gun on the side for the horses to set off, this, this chapter three is the starting gun and then the race is on. This is the starting point of the gospel. And what a guy John the Baptist must have been. I don't think we can overemphasize just how amazing this man was. He's important enough for all the four gospel writers to talk about him in quite a lot of detail. And actually, I don't, I don't know if you knew this, John even makes it out of the pages of the Bible into the writings of a man called Josephus, a contemporary Jewish historian. Josephus tells us that John was a good man and that Herod had him killed because he was afraid that his influence might lead to a rebellion. Josephus tells us that John commanded the Jews to be righteous towards one another and pious towards God and to be baptised, not to save them, but as a sign that their lives had already changed. And he tells us that many crowds came out to John and they were greatly moved by his words. Amazing that that should be outside of the Bible confirms what is in the Bible but more importantly Jesus himself later describes John as a shining light and then later on in John in um, Matthew's gospel Jesus says something incredible Matthew chapter 11 verse 11 Jesus said this this is a sad part of the story actually John the Baptist in prison and when when you hear what we're going to talk about today John the Baptist in prison he began to wonder whether Jesus was really who he thought he was. And he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you, are you, are you really the Christ? He, he actually doubts. And Jesus tells them what to go back and say to John. And then Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I just want to pause for a moment and just let that sink in. Jesus himself identifies this man, John the Baptist, as the greatest human being who had ever walked the face of the planet. Isn't that incredible? Greater than Abraham, Moses, King David, Solomon, all the prophets, put them all in a room and say to Jesus, who's the greatest? And he would pick John. It's John the Baptist, mate. No one has been born who's better than him. And John's impact was huge. There was an old bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s called Bishop J.C. Ryle. And he wrote, few preachers have ever produced such effects as John the Baptist did. Matthew says here that he preached in the Judean desert. I recently had the privilege, as you know, of going to Israel and went to the Judean desert. And I can tell you, it is barren and searingly hot. And the crowds flocked out of their towns and villages, out into the desert. Matthew tells us here that they came from Jerusalem, verse 5, and all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan, the west bank and the east bank of the Jordan, 
they came out to him in their droves. He dressed like a weirdo. He had a bizarre diet. He had no church or synagogue to preach in. He had no media outlets. He wasn't on Twitter or Snapchat. He didn't even go to the cities or towns to reach where the people were. And his message, in a sense, wasn't one of building people's self-esteem up. He was calling people to confess their sins. And despite his clothes, his message, the place he was, the weirdness of all of it, thousands of people came out to hear this man preach in the desert. Isn't that incredible? John the Baptist was like, uh, uh, when I've been preparing this week, I'm thinking of John the Baptist like a human blowtorch. Do you, you know what a blowtorch is? I, I was looking forward to doing this. <laughs> See, that wakes you up, doesn't it? A blowtorch. Have you ever used a blowtorch? It melts things. It cleans things. The, John the Baptist, he wakes people up who've been asleep. He shocks people. He provoked people into radically changing their whole lives. His whole ministry was one of cleansing people from their dirtiness and shining God's light into people's darkness. His work here is the beginning, not only of a country being changed, but it is the beginning of the gospel that has turned the whole world upside down ever since. Does that whet your appetite? What an amazing guy. And what an amazing moment in human history this is. Here's, here's what we're going to do. Oh, I, I, sh- I should um, use this. I, I'm rubbish at using it. I have to point it up there at the corner. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Here's my titles. I'm a bit embarrassed about the first one because it sounds a bit lame. John the Baptist was a preacher. And that seems to be the plain truth of what's going on here. So I want to think about his preaching. And the passage here splits quite nicely into three sections. So I want to think about his happy content. I couldn't think of a better word. We'll come to that in a minute. His great concern. And lastly, his unshakable confidence. And I think anyone who's preaching would do well to remember these two things. Good content, deep concern, unshakable confidence. That's a great pattern for any preacher. And uh, John the Baptist nails it here. So let's talk about, first of all, (laughs) what I've called this happy content, um, which is a rubbish title. So in in verses 1 to 6 this is, Matthew introduces us to this man, John. And he describes his ministry. And he describes the effect it had on people. And to begin with, it is all undeniably positive. The reason I say that is often I think we assume, if you know anything about John the Baptist, I think the image we have of John the Baptist is that he preached a negative message and that he was some kind of hellfire and damnation, preacher of doom, a little bit mad in the eye, a little bit frothing in the mouth. He, he was there in the desert, basically preaching bad stuff. There, there is some of that. We'll get to his concerns in a minute. But I want to pause first, and this has struck me very powerfully this week, and just see how glorious and positive and amazing 
and inspiring his message actually was and is. Let's try and pile up some of the evidence. First of all, his name. John was actually given his name by God before he was even born. If you know the story, it's in Luke's Gospel. His parents, his dad was a priest, and an angel appeared, like, like an angel appeared to Mary, to his dad when he was in the temple. And the angel said to his dad, you are to give him the name John. So his name is not an accident. I don't think the angel said John the Baptist, but his name was John. Do you know, does anyone know what the name John means? Very good, bonus point. It, it means Jehovah is gracious. The name John means God is kind. How, how can this man be a preacher of doom with a name like John? This is a name God gave him as well. And his parents were told that he would be a joy and a delight to them. Maybe that might just change our thinking of John. Secondly, these are coming up. His message too, he's in extremely good company with his preaching. Matthew tells us that he had a simple message. It's there in verse 2. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. I mean, I'm sure he said more than that. But that's a summary that Matthew gives us of his message. We'll we'll get to this. But in chapter 4 and verse 17, we're told that Jesus began to preach. And what was his message? Well, you don't need to turn to it. I'll tell you, it was exactly the same word for word as what John the Baptist just said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. More than that, when Jesus later sent out his own disciples in Matthew chapter 10 to do ministry, he told them to preach. And guess what their content was? The kingdom of heaven is coming. The same kind of message. So this guy isn't like out of sync with the rest of the Bible. He's not even, he's in good company with Jesus himself, the disciples. This has been the message of the church down the ages. So we need to remember that too. Thirdly, More than all of this, people have heard nothing from God for almost 400 years. The Old Testament is already old. You get that? Nothing has happened at all in terms of God doing something or anything. Lots of things have happened politically. But no prophet has said anything from God for 400 years and suddenly this man dressed like a weirdo appears in the desert and his message is basically get ready guys because God's coming that sounds like good news to me and lastly we're just piling up the evidence here to kind of get a perspective on John's message fulfilled prophecy just look with me at what Matthew says again, verse 3, Matthew says something else about John. This is the one who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So in verse 3, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist is actually the very one 
that Isaiah was speaking about in the Old Testament and then he gives this quotation it's actually from Isaiah chapter 40 this is 600 years before John was even born and in this in, the, in that chapter in, well in Isaiah in that part of Isaiah Isaiah was a prophet and he was predicting and warning that Israel because of their unfaithfulness to God would be carried off into the Babylonian Empire way up in the north imagine being uprooted and carried off by an invading army and repopulated somewhere else like hundreds of miles away and these are God's people Isaiah's warning them that because of their own unfaithfulness to God they're going to be carried off into exile so as Isaiah's preaching you know you're not sitting there listening to Isaiah going he's a great preacher this guy he's really uplifting I mean, what, what he's doing is preaching that the end is near. And then Isaiah gets to chapter 40. And in my Bible, that chapter is headed, comfort. Even before they've gone into exile, Isaiah begins to give them the answer. Effectively, that I suppose they're being punished. But afterwards... God tells them that one day this ordeal of exile would come to an end and that God himself would return to them and bring them home. So in Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for. And then comes this quote that's in Matthew where Isaiah is really saying to them, 600 years before, God is going to build a motorway, basically. From Babylon in the north, all the way through the desert, back to Jerusalem so that you can come home. God is going to build a road for you. You, you are in exile far away, but God is going to find a way to bring you back. The picture is of valleys that are low being built up, mountains that are high being, being broken down. The whole desert area is going to be covered in a red carpet for God to come and lead his broken people back home in a joyful convoy. The desert is very significant in Jewish history. They came out of Egypt through the desert to the promised land. Now they're returning from exile in Babylon via the desert back to the promised land. The desert is the ultimate symbol for a Jewish person of a scary wasteland where God begins to renew things. So this prophecy in Isaiah is a very happy one. It is exciting, it's comforting, it's optimistic, it's looking forward. This is about the road back home. So when John starts to speak, it all fits. He's in the desert. God has been silent for 400 years. The people are low and desperate. And now Matthew applies this very prophecy, not so much to the people going home on a road that God has built, but now God himself is building a road to come home to them. 
Do you get the twist that Matthew puts on that? A voice of one calling in, in, the, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. What he's saying is, not that you're going home to God, but that God is actually coming home to you. It's an unbelievable message. John describes it here as the kingdom of heaven coming. The prophecy is really talking about the Lord himself coming to his people. You, you understand that when John says the kingdom of heaven is near, he's not talking about geography. You know that, don't you? He's not talking about a geographical land. The kingdom of heaven is not in a place. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is a dynamic thing because actually it is the rule of God in people's hearts and lives. One writer says, this is the time in which the reign of God in the hearts and lives of men would begin to assert itself more powerfully than ever before. This, according to John the Baptist then, is a glorious rescue mission. God is, is setting himself to the task of invading human failure, misery, with his glorious power and help. He could not have better content than that, could he? God's coming! What had gone wrong for them? I want to suggest that the thing that went wrong for them is the thing that always goes wrong for us too. And it's this. It is when we begin to believe the lie that we can be happy outside of God. Independent. When we begin to believe that we can find our ultimate fulfillment outside of him, we go our own way. It doesn't really matter what it is. But the truth is, we think we know better, we can do better, we'll be happier even if we forget God and go our own way. We reject his kingdom because we want to be our own kings. We live our lives as if God himself is not enough for us. That's where Israel went wrong. I think that's where we go wrong. But the amazing message of John and of Jesus and his followers and all the gospel is that God is still coming. Despite our failure... He doesn't want us to be miserable and separated from him. And so he comes to us, not to condemn us, but to save us, to forgive us, to help us and strengthen us, to change us. John knows that God is coming and when he comes, he will utterly save them. He will blow their minds. It will thrill their hearts. It will captivate their vision. In, in that chapter in Isaiah, chapter 40, read it this week. Isaiah portrays God in that chapter as powerful, creative, 
joyful, eternal, majestic, beautiful, admirable, wise and good. God even pleads with his people in that chapter and says, who will you compare me to? Where are you going to go? What will fill your vision in the same way that I will and can? And John the Baptist stands up and preaches and says, get ready guys, it's God, it's coming. What do you do when the God who is good is about to show up? What, what do you do if someone really important comes to your house or a great dignitary comes to your town? I was telling my kids this week, we drove past my old primary school this week, last week, and it always reminds me of when the Queen came, when, when it was her 25th Jubilee in 1977. And we all got the day off school and got given a little flag. And we all stood at the side of the road. And the Queen came past. We were all so excited to give a little wave. I'm sure she looked at me and waved at me. But when, when, when someone important is coming to your house, there's no accidents on the roads. There's no hold-ups. There's no traffic jams. The red carpet's laid out, isn't there? How do you get ready for God coming? Well, John says here, repent. Repent. Get ready. Because God's coming. And there we are. The word repent is an interesting word. I think often we take this negatively. It means, really, be changed. Be completely changed. For Greeks, this word meant changing your mind and it didn't matter whether you were changing it positively or negatively biblically here it means changing your mind your heart, your will your values, your purposes your destiny, your whole outlook and behaviour the way that these people were to get ready for the God who is good coming to them was to open their hearts to see that he is good and that he's coming and to tidy up their lives and invite him gladly in I, I want to say to you this afternoon that the essence of sin in the Bible here and everywhere is always to make the mistake of thinking that God is somehow not good to come to the conclusion that He's not enough. And to seek satisfaction in, in things instead of in him. For John, if God is coming with all of his power and love and goodness, the only possible legitimate response to that is to receive him joyfully. The only right response is to realise the emptiness of rebelling against him to stop believing lies about him, to stop trying to avoid him, to stop trying to replace him with other things and get ready to welcome him. The way they were to prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him, one writer says, is to provide the Lord with ready access to their hearts and lives and to clear away all the obstacles which he's thrown in his path. 
Would you agree with me then that this is a message of great positivity? Get ready, guys. God's coming. Can I tell you something important? Well, I'm going to anyway. You will never be able to change. You will never be able to live a Christian life until you realize that God is good. The only thing that will motivate you to get ready for God is to know that he's coming and that he's amazing. And that when he comes, he will only do you good. You can't change unless you know that. That's why John says here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's basically saying to them, get ready and giving them the fuel to get them ready. God's coming. He's amazing. Get ready, guys. And look at the effects it has here. People came from all over the place. They wouldn't come to hear a miserable bloke, would they? And in verse 6, Matthew tells us that confessing their sins, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. What are they doing? They're realizing that they've been living for something else instead of him. And they come, some of them no doubt, with tears. What have I been doing? Confessing their sins. They're baptized by John in the Jordan River. It's a powerful image, you know, because if you were a Jew, you were born one. And if you were not a Jew, a Gentile in other words, and you wanted to become a Jew, do you know what the Jews would do? They would invite you to be baptized as a sign of your cleansing. Those dirty Gentile scoundrels, we better wash them clean before they can come in. But here, it's the Jews who are coming in droves to do what they normally made Gentiles do. This is a message that is beginning to penetrate their hard hearts. Perhaps they had thought they were far. But now they're convicted deeply and they see because of John's preaching that they haven't been loving God. They've been doing something else and what they need is his forgiveness and help and strength. Isn't it great that God is coming to provide that very thing? So he had a happy content. Do you get, do you get that? His content was good, inspiring. And encouraging, but he had a deep concern as well. Oh, go on. I'm just going to leave that. So, this is from verse 7. And the tone changes here. But the point is the same, really. In this next section, John sees some people coming to be baptized, and he basically doesn't believe them. He doesn't believe that they're sincere, and he absolutely flattens them. You brood of vipers! You snakes! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? I mean, that's not very polite, is it? 
He has a good message. God's coming, get ready. But when these people come to John and he somehow sees into their inner workings and he just kind of verbally lambasts them. He calls them snakes. What The picture here is basically saying, you're like snakes hiding under a bush that someone then sets on fire. You picture this scene in the desert, a little bit of dry bush, and there's a snake there minding its own business, and maybe someone lights the bush. And what does the snake do? It kind of slivers off from under the bush. Why? Because it doesn't want to get burned. John the Baptist is saying to these people, you're only here because you're frightened of God's judgment. Not because you love him. Your repentance is fake and your lives prove it. So what we've got first is the amazing good news of God coming to save and rescue his people. But these Pharisees and Sadducees react furiously to John and later to Jesus. How on earth does that happen? The, the, what is really going on here? This is like a life raft being thrown to a drowning person who then catches it and throws it back and says, how dare you try and rescue me? That That is the stupidity of what's going on here. God's coming, guys. Get ready. You're joking. They, that's why John reacts to them in the way he does God is coming to be kind and and they don't want God to be kind what's really going on here just be patient with me as I try and work out this the Pharisees and the Sadducees have you heard of them they come up in the Gospels quite a lot they're very interesting groups remember now that Israel is at this point an occupied country the Romans conquered the land the Jewish people are prisoners in their own land and these two groups are very significant because they both react very differently to that brutal reality the Pharisees in a sense are what we might call religious separatists they found refuge in trying to be as morally upright as they could They had no real political power. They actually didn't want it. But they exerted a big influence at grassroots level, teaching people to be ritually clean and separating themselves from anything or anyone they thought was unclean in order to preserve their Jewish religious identity. They had the Torah, but they added to that all kinds of other regulations almost tying themselves in knots in order to be morally separate the Sadducees went completely the other way, rather than separate from the authorities, the Sadducees decided the best policy was to collude with them they wanted position and power and political influence they didn't take the Bible too seriously They certainly didn't want to get tied up with detailed rules made by fussy fanatics like Pharisees. Their solution was to cooperate. And they actually got pretty wealthy in doing it. 
most of the high priest family would have been very wealthy Sadducees. They were like the aristocrats, the nobility. Very small in number really, but very well connected and very powerful. What is going on here is that both these groups actually are trying to achieve security by their own efforts. The Sadducees do it by trying to be popular and getting on in the world. And the Pharisees try it by trying to be unpopular and separatist and moralistic. One of them trusts in politics, worldliness, their careers, material things, power. While the other group trusts in religion, moral separatism, self-righteous pride, religion. Two groups. They both try in different tactics to secure their identity. Do you know what the interesting thing is about them? They hated each other. For obvious reasons. They hated each other. They were so different in their beliefs. And yet here they are, holding hands. The truth is, they hate each other. But when God, the God who is good, is coming, they join hands because they hate him more than they hate each other. This is a theme in Matthew because these guys were a constant thorn in the side of Jesus. Eventually, they colluded in having Jesus crucified because they couldn't stand it. Why did they hate the God who is good so much? I want to suggest to you that it's because they're trusting in something else and not him. Like vipers slithering away from the fire, they don't love the God who is good. Actually, they fear him and they're angry that someone has the audacity to challenge what they're actually relying on to bring about their security. And that's why their repentance is fake and not real. I do love the way John's preach is so clear. I love the way he anticipates what they're going to say. He sees the loopholes before they do. He knows the escape routes that they are going to want to run down. He's calling them to get ready because the God who is good is coming to save them. And he knows how they will try and get themselves off the hook. Look at what John says in verse 9. Before they even have chance to say it. And don't think you can say to yourselves we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. You can't rely on where you were born. Or your mum and dad is. Or the fact that you're even part of a church. God is not looking for you to wear a badge that says, I love God. He's looking for your heart. In other words, the only way you can get ready for the God who is good coming is to love him. John is saying to them, there's no evidence in your life that you actually love God. I'm not baptizing you because you are a bunch of fakes. One writer says this, too often in the history of the church, people have trusted in living in a Christian country 
being raised in a Christian family, holding membership or even an office in a local church, and even in verbal claims to have repented and to have trusted in Christ, yet without the evidence of a changed life and perseverance in belief, all such grounds of trust prove futile. These men are actually trying to use their apparent faith in God to avoid God himself while they're relying on something else to protect them. Isn't it ironic? And John mocks them as people who are only concerned to escape the wrath to come rather than being people who genuinely wish to change. These are the people who are like, I don't want to be in trouble and I certainly don't want God to be crossing me but I don't really want to change. I don't want to have to love him follow him another writer says the only thing that would make John change his mind about them would be if they really behaved differently going through the motions of baptism wasn't enough real repentance meant a complete and lasting change of heart and life that was the only way to get the road ready for the coming king. This is John's deep concern. And I think in a sense, it has to be mine too, for you. The gospel is good. This is a happy message. But it is possible to miss it completely. You and I can rely on the wrong things too. Maybe for you, you might be like a Sadducee and it's the world and status and popularity and stuff, career and all that. Or maybe you're more like a Pharisee and the kind of person who tries to attain reputation and kudos by being morally good so that people will think well of you. What John's really saying is that neither of these approaches work and neither will ultimately satisfy us. Often, you know, the reason that we get angry in life, the reason that we often feel despair is because of this very thing. We've been trusting in the wrong thing and then it lets us down and life itself feels like it's not worth living then. We try hard to be well thought of and someone doesn't think we're very good and we just lose the plot. How dare they? The reason it makes us angry is that we're trusting in what people think of us for our security and when it evaporates we don't know what to do anymore John the Baptist says that these Sadducees, Pharisees they are going to miss out on God's goodness if they don't change the God who is good does not want any person to miss out on him But the consequence of rejecting his kindness is for him to give you what you want and let you go your own way. John doesn't mince his words here. There are two different destinies described here. One is good, the other is awful. There is a wrath to come. John's picture here is of a woodcutter. I've got an axe at home. Sometimes chop some wood. Got some new wood this week that I need to chop. Big long axe. The picture here is of the woodcutter just kind of touching the base of the tree with his axe 
to just check where he's going to hit it before he pulls the blade back to that's what John says the axe is at the root of the tree the God who is good is coming to save you if you turn your back on him the axe is ready to fall every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire his content is good but his concern is very deep we did say there was a third section in the narrative let's uh, let's finish off this is from verse um, just 11 and 12 the last few verses you still with me? good his message was good happy his, his concern for them was very profound and deep but thirdly he has an unshakable confidence John's confidence is surely very striking he knows who he is he knows what his job is and yet his whole message points to someone else verse 11 I baptise you with water for repentance that's good isn't it but after me will come one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not fit to carry he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire what an unshakable confidence John has I just want to say two things on this before we close first of all John realises that he's just a warm-up act you get that don't you if he's the blowtorch the one to come is like a volcano John says I'm just getting you ready when he comes he will give you the Holy Spirit he will fill you with power and light and love and joy and peace you will never ever be alone again he will fill you and this will change you this by the way is why it's not possible to claim to be a Christian and not have a changed life because if you really have the Holy Spirit in the way John's describing here you will be different to what you were there will be struggles for sure but even in, even the fact that you know that you're now in a struggle is evidence that you're changing anyway John says I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes this is a big deal slaves I'm told were meant to do anything for their masters except carry their shoes why? because they stank of dust and sweat and grime Jesus had said that John the Baptist was the greatest human being who had ever been born and now John says I'm not worthy to smell his shoes mate I'm not worthy to even smell his shoes John's opinion of Jesus I think is very high actually Matthew's opinion of Jesus is very high the prophecy in Isaiah that we talked about speaks in the Old Testament of Jehovah the Lord God Almighty Yahweh 
it actually says, make straight the paths for Yahweh, God. And here, Matthew has the audacity to attribute that very prophecy to Jesus. John is preparing the way for God to come, and then God does come to them in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. That is effectively what John said. John is really a signpost. His message is clear. It's consistent with everything that Jesus will go on to preach. But in the end, John is there saying, it's not about me, it's about him. I'm baptizing you with water. I'm just warming you up. I'm just getting you ready. When he comes, he'll give you everything. Matthew has already told us in Matthew's gospel that Jesus will save his people from their sins. It is an understatement to say that the coming of Jesus is good news. Jesus will ultimately lay down his life to pay for our sins. This is the deal. He values us even though we did not value him. And the reason John has unshakable confidence is not because of himself or his preaching or anything in him at all. His confidence going right back to the beginning, is the fact that he, God, is coming. There's another aspect, though, to his confidence that is very striking here. I want to close with this. I think John is confident in Jesus because the world itself is in his safe hands. Let me try and explain what I think John means when Christ comes when the God who is good comes his very coming divides people into two groups this is always the way the message itself is good because God himself is coming to save and rescue and bless people but as that message is proclaimed loud and clear At the same time, it clarifies who the people are who don't love him. Isn't that true? John says that he baptized with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. Jesus brings both grace and judgment. Either Jesus gives you everything you need in the power of his Spirit, or... You reject him and he brings his fire. John's point is simply this. The preaching of the gospel will either soften your heart or harden it. Look with me at what John says at the end of this section in verse 12. We read it before. His winnowing fork is in his hand. It's a bit of a strange illustration. The winnowing here, I think, is the preaching it is if it's what we're doing now you know how it works this, this it when 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 preaching goes out into the world it's like Jesus is standing over the world with his winnowing fork so the farmer the farmer guy goes on a windy hill he lays all the harvest on the floor they trample all over it sometimes they get animals to walk on it 
to break up the kernels and the shells. And then the farmer, with his winnowing fork, picks up all the kind of dusty stuff on the floor and he throws it up in the air in the wind. The wheat is heavier, so it drops to the floor and the chaff, the shell, is blown away. Jesus stands over the world with his winnowing fork in his hand. But what is he doing? He's separating the wheat from the chaff. And to, as, as the preaching goes out, to some, Jesus will be the sweetest balm of life itself. Maybe that's you. You hear about Jesus and you love him. You embrace him. You welcome him. There's genuine repentance there. To other people though, he will be an offence and a stumbling block. So the, the truth is that as, as the preaching of the gospel goes out into the world, it will either make you glad or you will hate it. And that's exactly what John's preaching does. He had a great and happy and positive message. God is coming to save you. Get ready by changing your whole life to welcome him. But he also had a deep and a serious concern. Don't miss his coming. Don't rely on something else because it will cost you your very soul. And in the end, he has this unshakable confidence in the Lord Jesus. Can I ask you this afternoon, what are you going to do with all of that? What are you going to do with all of that? Are you looking for an escape route to get you off the hook? so that you can rely on something else? Or will you come and joyfully embrace the God who is good, who comes to you in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus? Will you embrace him as yours and love him? Amen.